Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again. It's good that the Howists are here. I don't know if you know this, but Josh is my son's pastor down in Redlands. So if you're wondering, why is he down there? It was for me. It was was for me. Uh, Philippians, Philippians chapter two. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter two. The apostle Paul writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Philippi and also to us, writes this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Would you pray with me briefly? Father, we ask now that you open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. March 15, 1783, General George Washington stood before the officers of the Continental Army. The Revolutionary War with Great Britain had been fought and won, but what the rebels, the colonies, would do to form a government was still in question. The colonists had declared and they had fought for and they had won their independence, but that didn't settle the fact of what kind of government would be formed to replace that of George III's England. And at the time, the prospects seemed dire. The soldiers of the Continental Army who had sacrificed so much for the colonies were being mistreated. Promises had been broken, agreements had been reneged, wages had been withheld, sufficient food and clothing were still nowhere to be seen, and the army had reached the breaking point. They were fed up. And if the Continental Congress would not act, then the army would. So a conspiracy was hatched, now called the Newburgh Conspiracy, to overthrow the Congress militarily and establish a military state. And if the military would have succeeded, it would have just been one more instance where a revolution succeeded, but in the subsequent chaos of the power vacuum left behind, the ideals, such as they were, of the rebellion would have devolved into a power grab. And history is full of examples like that. So General Washington, when he heard of the conspiracy, acted. The one... Mind you, Washington is the one who would certainly have been given power and authority over the military state, but he would not have that. He he gathered his officers, and he ordered them, stand down, you cannot do this. He told them, the army exists to serve the colonies and the Congress, the fledgling nation. Now, Washington would continue to advocate for them on their behalf to ensure that they would be treated fairly, but but they had been hearing this for years from him. They had heard commands and explanations, promises like this before. That was nothing new. So Washington, he, he could read the room. He looks at his officers, and he sees nothing but resolve in their eyes to continue forward with this. So he switches tactics. He reached into his breast pocket for a letter from a congressman. But when he went to read the small script, he paused 
awkwardly. His officers had never once seen their general stumble. See, Washington was a mountain of a man. At a time when the average height for men was about 5'6", five, 5'7", five, George Washington was 6 feet 2 inches tall. His strength was prodigious. His, his confidence was infectious. But he moves the paper back and forth, not able to read. And, and so he fumbles into his pocket for a set of spectacles. And his officers were stunned at this. Never seen it before. So Washington begs his officers, Gentlemen, you must pardon me, he said. I've grown old in the service of my country. And now I find that I am growing blind. The eyes of most of his audience, these soldiers who had been with him for so long, they fill with tears. It didn't even really matter what was in the letter, what was said. His officers knew that really no one had sacrificed as much for the revolution as their general had. And so now they would continue to follow his orders, but more than that, they would follow his example. Within minutes, the officers voted unanimously to end the rebellion. March 15, 1783, stands as one of the most important dates in American history, not because of a battle fought, not because of a treaty signed or legislation passed. It stands as a watershed moment in American history because of an act of humility that was transformative. This morning, as we look at the words of the Apostle Paul, maybe you're not a Christian, I, I would ask you this. Do you value humility? Do you understand that the Lord of the cosmos, Jesus Christ, if he would be known for anything this morning, in your eyes, it would be humility, far more than power. What difference could that possibly make for you? The rest of you are here, you're, you're followers of Christ already. You're, you are right now being transformed into the image of Jesus. Are you growing in humility? Is Gresham Bible Church growing in humility? Is this distinctive of Gresham Bible Church? The way down is the way up. Is this descriptive of us? Does it describe who we are or is it aspirational? Is it who we want to be? How can we grow still more in humility? Well, let's turn to the words of Paul to, to see what, what he would say to us. Paul at the time was himself imprisoned in Rome. He, he, he wrote to the church in Philippi to encourage them to stay faithful in the midst of trials. He, he wanted to receive a good report about them, whether in prison or by letter in person. He, he wanted to hear that they were standing firm, completely unified as they strove together for the gospel. But how could they do this? They were suffering, and, and, and suffering is, is, is difficult, even if, maybe even especially if it's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And, and unity, as, as we all know, that, that is elusive at times. But in our passage today, Paul is going to give some commands, and then he's going to offer a comparison, a comparison with Jesus Christ to illuminate, empower, and hopefully inspire our obedience. So let's just plunge in. We're going to walk through this passage. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So yes, if, if this is the case, 
But so, so we're going to geek out here for just a moment. This is what in the Greek language is known as a first-class conditional statement. It, 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 it really assumes what's being said. It's, it's like a rhetorical device. It probably could be better be translated, since these things are true of you, since there is comfort or encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from his love, since there is affection, since there is sympathy. See, Paul knew these things to be true of the church in Philippi because he knew the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. He knew that Christ is the source of all these things, and and everyone who is in Christ is actually and truly a recipient of Jesus's encouragement, his his comfort, his affection, his, his sympathy. These These four blessings of Christ, they are not mere sentimentality. And and perhaps this morning you you, you show up here, you you don't really feel encouraged by Christ or comforted by his love. It's not visceral to you at the moment. But but I ask you, the the members of GBC, maybe if you're feeling that way, imagine this. Imagine not having the community that we have here. What would it be like to not have a church family? What would it be like to plow ahead in life or be plowed under by life without having people who care for you and love you? And they do so with the very love of Christ. What would that be like? So, so many of you have gone through or are going through so much, but you know, right, that you don't do it alone. Look at what we have in Christ. These are objective, true statements of what we have. Now, in, in the next few verses, Paul's going to explain how he knows this to be true. He's, he's going to dive into theology to explain that. But, but for now, recognize that the reality of Christ's love for you, it forms the foundation of the commands that Paul is going to give. Since you do have encouragement in Christ, since you have been comforted by his love, since you have the affection and sympathy of Jesus Christ, then he says, be united one with another. And the key, he's going to say, is humility. Verse 2, Paul says, since these things are true, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul starts here with, with unity, but, but his focus, as we see, it's really on, on humility and the service that follows from that. And, and, and we have to admit that, that humility, it doesn't really come easy for us, for any of us. Of course, that's why Paul commands it, right? He doesn't waste his time commanding things that are easy, like no one's ever had to command me to breathe, for example. I just, I just do it, right? But huma- humility is kind of the opposite of breathing, isn't it? It cuts against the grain of the world, the flesh. It's the opposite of what motivates the devil. To not be motivated by ambitious conceit, to consider others and their interests as more important than your own, That is not the way the world works, is it? It's certainly not the way to get ahead, I think. And it could not come more unnaturally. See, our our, our world is, as you know, right, because you live in the world, it's built on self-promotion. Social media is a cesspool of of projecting an image. And the images that are projected on social media lie somewhere in between completely false and totally untrue 
like, like, like in that gap there, right? Social, social outrage, we just feed on that, right? It's, it, it's about kicking people while they're down, building yourself up by trampling on the remains of their tarred and feathered, canceled carcasses. Look to the interests of others? <laughs> I'm trying to build my brand. You gotta be kidding. That's not the way to go forward. But Paul knew by inspiration of the Spirit that the way of the world is a way of rebellion against God as people serve themselves. It's a way of actually ultimate self-hate as, as we seek to fulfill ourselves. It, it leads to people using and devouring one another, but Jesus here offers a different way, a, a way that seems totally foolish and, and backwards by the world's standards, a way that doesn't seek to climb culture's ladder. In fact, you're actually kind of climbing down culture's ladder. Jesus says that's the way forward, actually. Because the, the values of Jesus' kingdom, they seem so backward to fallen sensibilities that they're laughable at best, maybe suicidal at worst. Don't look out for yourself. Consider others more important. That's just going to lead to self-harm. Why would you do that? But Jesus is not just another talking head hack who is hawking a worldview. He is, in fact, as, as we know this morning, right? We know Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, the one by whom, through whom, for whom all of us have been created. So he knows the right way. He knows what is actually living into what he has designed you to be, right? But that doesn't mean it's easy. So Paul offers up an example, a comparison. And that example is none other than Jesus Christ himself. But in order to give this example, he has to take us into the deep and glorious end of the theological pool to think about the incarnate Son of God, the person of Christ. So let's, let's dive in. You're probably thinking, oh yeah, okay, so Todd's theology professor, he really loves to do this stuff. You would be right if you're thinking that. Look at verse 5. Here's the comparison. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I just want to pause there for a moment. And I made a little joke about theology here just moments ago. But we have to remember, Paul did not initially sit down to write the church in Philippi a theological treatise. He is trying to encourage them, trying to motivate certain behaviors that are godly and right. He didn't sit down to explain the ins and outs of the incarnation of Christ. But to encourage the Philippians to stay faithful, Paul appeals to the person of Christ. I think that's instructive because it tells us theology actually matters. It matters. In, in, in order to say something as mundane as be humble, what does he do? He explains the nature of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And Paul's directions here are very clear. Be like Jesus. And we think, well, sure, of course, we're Christians. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't make it easy, right? In particular, Paul says, be humble like Jesus. And to explain how humble Jesus Christ actually is, he discusses what we call in theology the hypostatic union, the union of humanity and de deity. I was going to say divineness. That's not even the word, deity. Humanity and deity in the person of Christ, in the one person of Christ. So here, here's how he goes. Look at verse 6. Who, so consider Jesus, have this mind of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Paul starts out, 
Before Jesus Christ was born as a fully human baby in Bethlehem, the Son of God existed as God, with God. We all know about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Eternity passed, all of them having the existence of God in the one person of God. Very mysterious, but, but there it is. The word form here, I think, is best understood as essence. Form is what a thing is at its core. It is what makes a thing what it is. Here's the best way to think of it. If, if there was a checklist of everything it takes to be God, the Son of God could check every single box. Every single box. Everything it takes to be God, the Son possessed in eternity past, possessed during the incarnation, and possesses still to this day. He was and is completely, fully God. Now, consider just for a moment here the enormity of that statement. The Son of God is completely and fully divine. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to remember that the one whom you call your Savior, he's not merely the best man for the job. He is Almighty God. The one who, through whom you approach the throne of grace in prayer or in times of need is not a priest of some failed Levitical caste or, or any churchly caste. He is Almighty God. The one who is head of the church is not merely the best pastoral candidate from a list that goes from like mediocre men to maybe some good ones. No, he's almighty God. And the son of God brings the entirety of his divine being into the task of being your savior, your redeemer, your great high priest, your Lord. Paul goes on. He says that the the son, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The son, prior to the incarnation, the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem, enjoyed equality with God, the existence of God, because he is God. That is, the son of God, think of it this way, he had all the trappings of deity, Whatever those are, I'm not entirely sure what those are, but they have to be awesome, right? They, they have to be great. He enjoyed the existence of God because he is fully God. Imagine like all the glory and honor and majesty that rightly belongs to God. Recall maybe from Revelation chapter 4, Revelation 5, the, the throne room of heaven where there are all these ma- majestic, angelic really hard to describe beings who are united in praise of God. And it is an awesome, awesome scene. And all of that belonged to the son. That was just like Tuesday for him, right? It was part of his everyday experience. But Paul taught that the son did not leverage the fact that he was God for his own benefit. The father comes to the son and says, I think you need to humble yourself, become incarnate. And and, and become a man. Uh, it's, it's not like the son looks down on humanity and says, ew, gross. Thank you, no. I like being or having the existence of deity. So hard pass on that one, right? No, he didn't say that. Instead, we're told that the son emptied himself. And in the Greek language, the, the word translated emptied, it really means like poured out, like you would pour out a pitcher of water. And so here's where it gets sticky. So the son, he, he, he doesn't say, hey, I, I enjoy the trappings of deity, so I'm not going to do it. Instead, we're told he pours himself out. What does that mean? How did the son of God empty himself? 
Does it mean that he stopped being divine? Does it mean that he divested himself of divine attributes? There have been many people in church history who think that, that, that this passage teaches that Jesus was actually kind of like T'Challa um, of the Black Panther movie. Have, have any of you seen Black Panther, the movie? Okay, okay, like four of you. This one's going to go really well. Okay, um, I, I know more of you have seen it than that. Okay. In the movie, there's a scene where T'Challa, who is, the, who is the Black Panther, he's got these Black Panther superpowers, but he's also the king of Wakanda. And, and the way that they decided who was going to be king is there would be like this, this duel, this fight, right? And, but that's hardly a fair fight if someone else wants to be king, challenged to be king, if you're fighting Black Panther. I mean, who's going to win that? So what, what T'Challa had to do, and this was the, the, the way it went, was he drank a potion from the, that, the heart-shaped herb that you always see, and, and it removed his Black Panther superpowers. And so then it was just the best man for the job, and he has to fight, like, who's it, like, Killmongers or something like that. It, it doesn't matter. Okay, here's the point. Some people think Jesus at the incarnation, was like Black Panther in that he divested himself. It's like in heaven he drinks a potion from the heart-shaped herb and he loses all of his deity. And then he comes down and he's merely just a human. But that's not what Paul says. So the takeaway from this, Jesus is not like Black Panther. He's better. He's better. Okay, write that down. Very, very important. Okay. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that? First, as we'll see, it's not what Paul actually taught. Second, if the son had stopped being God, if he had like had a few boxes on that divine checklist that now he could not check because he was incarnate, then it unravels the gospel. In order to save us, Jesus has to be fully human like us. He also has to be fully divine. That's the logic of the gospel. So, so it won't work to think that Jesus was like Black Panther. What does Paul actually say? Instead of thinking the son gave up his divine attributes, thereby ceasing to be God, we have to keep reading because Paul tells us exactly how the son of God emptied himself. He goes on. He emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He uses three phrases there to describe how the son emptied himself. And notice that in each case, he emptied himself, not by taking something away, but by adding something to himself. It is subtraction by addition. First, he, he took the form of a servant. Again, form, same exact word that we used earlier, describes the nature of something. Jesus took on the very nature, existence, and essence of a human servant. Go back to the original illustration. If you had a checklist of everything it takes to be God, if you had another checklist of everything it takes to be a human servant, Jesus could check every single box. Now he's got two lists where he can check every single box. In the passage, we're instructed to look at Jesus as the model and essence of what a servant is. A servant is not motivated by vain conceit or selfish ambition. A true servant is humble, motivated by concern for others. We, we can look at the life and ministry of Jesus. We see him living that out, right? Washing his disciples' feet, feeding the multitudes, healing the sick. It's like he lived and came to serve. I think he even said that, right? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The second phrase there, Jesus took on and was born in the likeness of humanity. Like, like every human being after Adam and Eve, Jesus was born. Now, I grant you, his conception was miraculous, extraordinary, but he was formed in the womb for uh, nine months, right? Mary didn't give birth to an elephant, right? Like probably about nine months, like every other baby, and he was born, granted, with angelic you know, singing, but really just like every other baby, humble circumstances, but really born just like an ordinary baby. I mean, the, the birth of Jesus, which we'll be looking at in like how many days till Christmas? Like you got five months of shopping to do, right? Five, the circumstances were very humble, but the description in the biblical text is Mary gave birth to a son. It was so ordinary that it needed no explanation. His growing up years were much the same, pretty ordinary. Need, need no elaboration or explanation. It's almost like there, there's really nothing to see here, guys. It's just, an, it's just a human. Now, we know he was more than that, but he was not less. Third, we're told Jesus came as a man. Literally, the text says, being discovered in the appearance as a man. Apparently, Jesus' humanity was no secret, Right? It was there for all to see. The, the eyewitness verdict on Jesus by all who saw and knew him was that he was what he appeared to be, a human man. Notice what Paul did not write, though. He did not write that Jesus emptied himself by giving up his divine nature and replacing it with a human nature. No, rather, Jesus emptied himself by adding a human nature to himself. It was, if you will, subtraction by addition. Now, my a, a former professor of mine, Bruce Ware, he, he illustrates the concept of subtraction by addition. Because that just sounds weird, right? How do, you, how do you take something away by adding to it? Well, consider a brand new Ferrari in an auto showroom. The car's in mint condition. The paint shines with a luster that magnifies its, its, its glory. It is an expensive, powerful sports car. Now imagine that you take it out for a test drive. Don't be too distracted by this because you're going to have to focus back in. But for a moment, imagine taking it out for a test drive. And it's a day rainier than today. It is wet. And you decide, I want to see what's under the hood, but I want to see off-road what's under the hood. And so you take it off-road through mud. And by the time you're done, the car is caked with mud. And you return it, not going to a car wash first. The shine, the glory, the luster of the car are now hidden by a thick layer of dirt. It's still a Ferrari. It's still an amazing car. But its glory has been veiled by the dirt. Subtraction by addition. In the same way, Jesus' deity, his glory, which was always present, is hidden or veiled by the addition of his humanity. Maybe that's why the transfiguration is, is so significant, because just for a moment, the veil is lifted for a couple people to see. We see this in the life of Jesus. In, in terms of appearances, there was nothing to commend him to others. His own hometown rejected Jesus. Recall how those who knew him best said, wait, aren't you Joseph's son? Much of Jesus' life and ministry could be classified under the category of does not meet expectations. His followers claimed that he was the Messiah, but he didn't meet any of the stock messianic criteria held by popular opinion. 
He didn't seem like a likely candidate to usher in a long-awaited kingdom of God. Droves of people came to him, and droves of people walked away disappointed. At the end of his life, those who were loyal were just a mere handful. A couple frightened fishermen, a few women. One of whom was his mom. She had to be there, right? That's, that's who was with Jesus, stuck it out with him to the very end. Unimpressive. Hardly the kind of entourage that you would expect of the Son of God. But then it gets worse, and Paul tells us that in the passage. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because Jesus took the very essence, the nature, the existence of a servant, we should expect that Jesus would do the deeds consistent with a servant. And that's precisely what he did. In, in obedience to the decrees of God the Father, the Son of God became a human, and he kept on obeying, and he obeyed, and he obeyed, and he obeyed, and he obeyed all the way to the cross. Talk about failure to build a brand. The Son of God is tacked to a Roman cross, the most scandalous and ignominious means of death that perhaps our human civilization, plural probably, have ever devised. And yet it's here that we must remember that Jesus is the Son of God. Despite all appearances to the contrary, he did not come to do his own will. And he certainly was not beholden to the people of the day, no matter how he disappointed them. He came to do the will of the Father, period. He came to save people, period. He came to inaugurate a true kingdom that will last forever. And in order to do that, he went the exact opposite way that we would expect a person who was trying to build a brand would go. What was that will? Jesus came to die to atone for human sins so that all who repent and place their trust in Christ will be saved. And of course, that's the gospel. For those of you who, don't, who, who have never believed the gospel or have never committed yourself to Christ or whatever language you want to use for it, the, this is what unites all the people here who are Christians. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior. We believe that Christ died for us, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And our invitation to you is the invitation we give every single week here. Repent, believe the gospel. It is the most important, the most wondrous, life-changing thing that you could ever do. But notice, even in the gospel, how humility is front and center. For the rest of us, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he didn't look the part of Almighty God, did he? And yet that's exactly who he was and that's who he is. Unrecognized by most, veiled by the form and role of a servant, Jesus Christ was still and always will be God in the flesh. Martin Luther called this theology of the cross. If you really want to know who God is, look at the suffering, humble servant. The glory of Christ is still veiled to the world. It's not public. Unbelievers don't recognize this glory. To them, Jesus might have been a remarkable human, but he didn't appear glorious. He may have said some clever and occasionally helpful things. He may have lived a life worthy of of. Of, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty good. He's a good guy. Inspirational conviction. 
But he wasn't worth emulating, at least not the hard parts of what he had to say. For most people, he's ultimately not worth following and certainly not worth worshiping. But we know better, don't we? We know that in that act of humility, we see the character of God writ large. Sometimes, even followers of Christ don't recognize that, though. We live in anticipation of his return, but we have to anticipate that in faith, not by sight. For, 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 for all of us here, most of the glory of Christ is what we see in the body, the church. The only body of Christ that is visible or apparent to our senses is the church, and, and the church is at times far from triumphant, far from glorious. Failures by the body of Christ are painful. And I get it. It causes doubt. It causes disillusionment. Maybe there, there, there's a part for some of you, you, you want to believe in Jesus, but the church gets in the way. The disciples of Jesus get in the way. But I would encourage you at that point, at that point, turn in faith to the following verses. Verse 9, Therefore, Jesus, a man, humble servant to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we have to cling to. It turns out that the way to go up, you go down first, at least by the world's standards. Brothers and sisters, friends, it, it, we hang on to that. The, the unveiling of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, it is coming. Fix our eyes on the exalted Lord by faith. Eagerly anticipate, yearn for his return when all will truly be made right. The cross is not the road to exaltation according to the wisdom of the world. But it is the path of, to glory as decreed by God. And I trust God when it comes to, like, to knowing the best way to glory more than I trust the sages of our age. It's at the cross that sin and death were defeated. It's at the cross that Satan and his dem demonic minions we're crushed. It's at the cross that the curse is undone, making possible the future recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. It's at the cross that the people of God were ransomed for God. It's at the cross that a new covenant was initiated with better promises, better blessings than any prior covenant God ever made. It's at the cross that the path was laid for the sending of the Holy Spirit. So people of GBC, you were saved by an act of dramatic humility, the culmination of, of a divine plan soaked in humility from beginning to end. We are constituted as a church by these humble actions, following a Lord who is characterized by humility. So I would ask you, how can we be different? Why would we want to be? So let's go back up to those first four verses. Reconsider the command to be humble. Do nothing from selfish ambition, vain conceit. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. And, and, and I've, I've said often here this morning, the way to humility, or the way of humility, that's really not the way of the world, is it? And I've also said that, that it's, it's not easy. But that doesn't mean that it's ridiculous. 
or contrary to who you were created to be. Far from it. You were, after all, created in the image of God. And uh, the, the great early church father, Irenaeus, he actually refined that and said, you weren't just created in the image of God, you were created in the image of God the Son. God the Son. Because you know, right, friends, that your destiny is to be like Christ. Your destiny is to be Christ-like. He is in the work of transforming you into the image of God the Son. So, so Jesus' way, the way of the kingdom, is actually the best way. It's the right way, the most fulfilling way. But for now, it takes hope and faith to believe it. So what are we called to do? We're called to be unified. That was the first command. Be unified. Don't be divided. And, and our culture loves division right now, and our culture loves division within the church. But what unites us is stronger than what unites any other group of people who can find some kind of unity. The world is really, really good at finding people who like maybe the same hobby and, and, and having a kind of unity there, or the same people who, who like the same songs or the same style of music, or, or they look the same or dress the same or whatever. But that's not what our unity is built on. Our unity is built on the confession of Christ, his work, his person, and that is robust because it comes from God. And so the unity that we have here is stronger than anything that the world could try to duplicate. It's kind of like Pharaoh and his magicians. They can do a few things, but when it comes to unity, true unity, like what we have in the gospel, the world can't touch it. They cannot even approximate it. So we dare not let anything divide us. We are united by our faith in Christ. We are united by what Jesus has done for us. So as, as we head into another political season, actually, we're always in a political season, aren't we? As we head into that, we can't divide over that. We can't. Our unity is in Christ, and our strongest testimony to the world that Jesus is the Christ, this is by Jesus' own teaching, is our unity. The world will see our unity here, people who maybe we don't like the same things, maybe we don't dress the same way, maybe we don't like the same music or eat at the same food trucks or whatever it is, right? But there's a unity that can't be broken, and Jesus says when the world sees that, they will know that God the Father sent Jesus Christ to do everything that Jesus said that he had done. So we have to guard this unity. How do we do that? Humility, Paul says. One of our church distinctives is, is that we will do just that. We will be humble. And it makes sense that if we are a Christ-centered church, then we should be a church that takes on the attributes of our king. We walk in the way of Jesus. And what is that way? It's the way of humility. And so my, my call here to you, GBC, this is not a rebuke. You guys need to repent, start doing this for the first time, right? My exhortation to you is stay on the path of humility. Excel still more. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, this sounds really good. I, I want to be humble. I, I, I don't quite know what to do. My first encouragement to you this morning is look around you, and you will see people who are following Jesus, and they are a good guide for what it's like to look to the needs of others more than yourself. Someone relatively new to the church, I will say that my wife and I were so deeply moved and encouraged when we first walked in and we looked around and we saw 
evidence of people who were doing what Paul said. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Consider others' needs as more important than your own. So look around you, encourage one another, and push forward by the work of the Spirit. Ask, what do we look for in our leaders? Hopefully humility, humble service. What do we esteem in those we look up to? What are our models? I want you to be like this person. I want you to be like... For, for my youngest three boys, we, we gave them middle names. They already had names. <laughs> but we gave them middle names. They have, they have like a whole bunch of names. But we wanted to give them names of people that they could aspire to be like. One biblical name and one person that they interacted with day by day. Because we, we picked out people who we thought exemplified this kind of character. When we gather, be strategic. Encourage you, plan to serve others rather than to be served. Show up on Sunday morning asking, boy, I, I sure hope the music is this way because I, I need it. Or, man, I hope Todd doesn't preach forever this morning. Um, I, that, I, that, I get it. That, that would be okay. But consider coming early so you can talk to others. Figure out how to pray for them, how to serve them. Greet people who are new to the church. Talk with them. And, and again, my own experience here and what I've seen you, I'm not asking you to start doing something you haven't, you're not already doing, but excel still more in that. If you have time and desire, what does humble, sacrificial service look like? Talk to our local outreach team. There's a board in the back. I'm sure they'll be delighted to give you some, some ideas about how you can serve those in the church and in the community. We, we already heard how we can sign up for, uh, for service in the community. That's a tangible and practical way to put into practice what we've learned is the way of Jesus. You know what it's like to receive encouragement from Christ. I'm sure you do. If you have such comfort, then share that with others. And young people, as you go back to church, taking the path of humility will mark you as different, maybe even strange. But be the person who looks for the lonely and the hurting. Be willing to take some social capital hits to be seen with some people that maybe the popular crowd doesn't want, you, want to be seen with. Make it your goal this year to think first of serving others and their interests. Imagine what kind of witness and blessing that will be to those with whom you are at school. The way the world is platform building, selfishness, conceit. The way of Jesus runs in the exact opposite direction. Recall the Beatitudes that we read at the beginning of the service. Jesus' values, as we said, they are the exact opposite of the world's. The question is, who are you going to let shepherd you? The world and its talking heads or Jesus Christ? Do we want to be a church that excels in self-promotion, marketing, doing whatever it takes to build our brand? Or are we going to be a church that excels in seemingly going downward, sacrificially serving others that the world doesn't care for, and doing so in the manner of our Lord? Who are we going to trust? Our creator and savior or the self-help gurus and mouthpieces of this world who value you only insofar as they can use you, Jesus values you so much that he used up himself for you. 
GBC, I would say this, we will look most like Jesus when we are humble. We act most like Jesus when we sacrificially serve, excel still more in doing so. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, humility, it does not come naturally for us, but that's only true because we are broken people living in a broken world. But you are all about recreating us, and we eagerly anticipate the time where humble service comes naturally. Give us hope to see growth in sanctification, even this day, as we take steps of humility. I pray that we would find the kind of encouragement in Christ, the comfort from his love that, that we ought to. But Father, use this church, transform us individually and as a body to look and act like Jesus. Please make that true of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.